Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. called The Fog by Michelle Montano from the 2013 album Michelements Volume 1. It's available on Apple Music. And that's appropriate because we are driving through a fog to go to the drive-in for the final time this summer. Where specifically are we going? We are going to Nebraska. I'm not sure that that would be a destination point any other time of the year, but we're going to the Grand Island Twin Drive-In. We are traveling back to 1980, and we are seeing a great double feature. Actually, we're seeing two out of four movies. They're doing a Dusk to Dawn show. We're going to be catching... Oh, oh John... hang on. Hang on just a second. I, I think I heard this on the radio. Oh, okay. John Carpenter's The Fog and Phantasm. Just when you thought you were out of their trance, they're back. The Fog has returned to prove that what you can't see won't hurt you. And Phantasm is back to kill you all over again. Two terrific hits together to grab you. The Fog and Phantasm, rated R. Well, that was a coincidence. You were just about to tell us uh, the movies that we're going to see. They don't have Google in 1980, do they? To hear <laughs> what we're talking about? That's kind of creepy. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we are going to be watching John Carpenter's The Fog and Phantasm. This was a re-release. As the ad said, they're kind of pairing up The Fog and Phantasm. That's two of the four movies. We're going to miss the other two, but honestly, it'd be a great Dusk to Dawn show because the other two movies are Prom Night and Death Ship. If we were here the whole night, that'd be a fun, as, as the ad says, four great shows in one program. <laughs> So Yeah, but you know, me, uh, with my bedtime, we can't stay for all four. I'd, I'd be off doing for, good for two weeks. I know. I know we're doing good for two movies. Yeah. So this drive-in actually, you know, as far as drive-ins go, wasn't really open that long. It was open for roughly about eh, 30, 35 years, which I guess that's about average maybe for some drive-ins. A lot of, a lot of drive-ins had kind of earlier starts and hung on a little bit longer this one opened in 1949 as this is a great original name they gave their drive-in. It was called 
the drive-in, <laughs> which I guess in, in Grand Island, that's probably all they needed to know. It had a capacity, though, for 650 cars, Whoa. so a pretty big-sized drive-in. At one point in the 1950s, it had a children's zoo, and it was like publicized as being the world's largest and best children's zoo at a drive-in theater. <laughs> uh, is it the only one? I've I, never heard of been. one. Of I don't know. Parks and playground equipment, that very standard fare for a lot of drive-in theaters. You know, you bring the family down before the movie goes, you swing them on the swings. Children's Zoo, kind of an interesting thing. And it had 23 different animals at one point. Kind of a legit thing. It also offered a church service on Sunday mornings during the summer months. If you stay late for the four great shows, just stay on for the Sunday morning church service. A second screen was added in 1972, and that's when it became the Grand Island Twin Drive-In. Now, I guess the, the total capacity for cars really didn't change that much, though. 720 cars, I guess, was the total capacity. Looking at an aerial shot of the drive-in after it closed, kind of before it, it it was like demolished, but not totally erased, you know, kind of the remnants. You could see that where the screens were kind of placed in the middle, and then the cars were kind of stretching out on either side. I could see that it added a, a few cars, but not much, but it gave them the ability to double the amount of movies that they were playing. The drive-in closed in the early 80s, so we're kind of in the final days of this drive-in as we get there, sadly. It was later demolished, and taking a look at Google Earth in uh, 2022, unfortunately, there are no longer any remnants of the drive-in. Sadly, it's been replaced by a shopping strip mall and pretty much a parking lot. This great drive-in makes way for a Hy-Vee and, and God forbid, <laughs> another Starbucks, believe it or not, is right where the drive-in would be, among some other stores. Kind of sad, but, you know, I guess that's quote-unquote progress. Nonetheless, this was a, a you know, a great drive-in for, you know, 30-plus years, so I guess it did hang in there a reasonable amount of time, but didn't survive that early 1980s death of so many drive-ins as you had competition from cable television and VHS was coming along. We're going to get a chance to see see some great movies on the on the screen before the ultimate demise. We've got a little bit to get there. Let's do some old business. We've got quite a bit of it. Before we introduce our new members, though, how about we introduce ourselves? We should probably do that. Who, who are uh, you, sir? I am Richard Chamberlain, and I am from monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. One site only, but that's all the world needs. A Monster Movie Kid closing in on the 10th anniversary. We're, we're just less than two months away from the 10th anniversary of my blog, which seems really kind of crazy. Who are you, sir? I'm Jeff Owens, classichorrors.club. Let's introduce our new members. These are people that have joined our Facebook group page on Facebook, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. And we have three to welcome this month. We welcome Kylie Klein-Nixon, Mike Totino, and Billy Dunleavy. I thought Billy was already a member, but uh, I see that he recently joined. Yeah, I thought he was too, but uh, welcome, Billy. I was on his podcast recently, and he fits on a great show, multiple podcasts, actually. He's he's creating his own little podcasting empire going on there. 
And I know Kylie, I believe she joined through a connection, if I'm correct, through uh, Alistair and oh. um, Hammerama. Welcome one and all to, to our clubhouse. Yes, and we have feedback uh, from a variety of sources this month, which I think is exciting. We actually had a comment on our YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel, by the way, where you can watch a video companion to this podcast. It will include some clips from here, some new stuff, lots of video. Be sure to check that out on our YouTube page. But Stephen Patrick Lee commented, and this is on our last episode. I saw both of these movies when I was a kid back in 72. Smog Monster was my first theater experience with Godzilla and the other movie I actually saw in a drive-in. Both are goofy fun. We also have uh, someone that did participate in a conversation on our Facebook group page. I love this as a little selfish because I do my Friday TV terror guide where I review 70s TV movies. And Steve Bowen posted, gonna be a 70s TV horror movie weekend. Kino Lorber is releasing some nice discs. And he is correct because Scream Pretty Peggy, Terror Out of the Sky, Ants, and Tarantulas the Deadly Cargo are all out or coming out on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. From our buddy Jonathan Angarola, he was with us last month at the drive-in, and he has some comments about the movies that we are getting ready to watch tonight. So let's hear what Jonathan has to say. Hey, guys, it's Jonathan just checking in. We're in the dog days of August, and sad that the run of the drive-in is going to be over soon, but I had a blast connecting with you guys last month. Always love talking some Smog Monster or just kaiju in general, or anything monster-related. I understand that you guys are going to be doing, uh, are covering Phantasm and The Fog, so just call in with some, just quick, quick, quick comments. Phantasm is, well, Phantasm is one of those movies I, I revisit every now and again, and I always want to like it more than I end up liking it after the rewatching. I don't know why. I like it, and it's got a ton of, of interesting ideas, really cool ideas going on. And it's, uh, you know, it's my favorite blend of sci-fi and horror. But it doesn't always, I don't know, it just doesn't quite come together. I enjoy it, but I always want to like them a little more. I also saw the various sequels, thanks to Joe Bob's episode on all the Phantasm films a while back. I think he did four of the five. For some reason, he uh, skipped over part two. You know, the adventures of uh, Mike and Jody and Reggie and, and all that. They're fun, but I would say definitely diminishing returns. <laughs> one of, at least one of you enjoys it more. I feel like one of you is a big fan, but I cannot remember which one. Uh, the Fog, classic, John Carpenter. To me, that's like, you know, right in the middle of John Carpenter's, you know, wonderful run, that mid-70s to mid-80s, I guess mid to late-80s run of just great film after great film. The Fog definitely is in there. The score is amazing. The cast is great. Adrian Barbeau is wonderful. You got John Houseman in the beginning, which is a great way to kick off the film. I definitely want to visit that lighthouse sometime where the radio station um, resides, where Adrian Barbeau does her thing. Super cool. And I understand it's still there. Definitely next time I'm out in California, I want to want to check that out. Yasmin is a big fan of The Fog as well. She's uh you know, I've been telling you guys how she's been really, like, taking to a, lot, a fair amount of the horror and the monster movie stuff. And uh, she's loving all Carpenter. Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, 
The Fog, The Thing, Christine. Finally, though, we hit one that she didn't like, and it was uh, Big Trouble in Little China. She just something about the pacing, you know, she just wasn't feeling it. So, yes, I'm really curious to hear what you guys have to say about these two films. Enjoying Balls and That was a great time for sci-fi, that late 70s, early 80s period. You know, you have Alien and you have Blade Runner, got a bunch of other films, too. And, well, Phantasm, as we already mentioned. I know we've, uh, we can't have talked about Shadows. I am up to the point where Angelique, we actually find out we've gone back in time to 1795, and we found out how Barnabas becomes a vampire. And uh, Angelique's shenanigans eventually led to that, so that's the part I'm up to now, and it took so long just to get to this point. I think I still have, like, was it 1,600 episodes? On episode four, of, I don't know. I have a long ways to go, but I, again, I watch sporadically, so it's going to take a long time. The rest of my life, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I do enjoy it, though. It's a great show. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I've dabbled some obscure stuff. I think we, we talked offline. I watched Laser Blast, which is basically a movie with no story whatsoever. <laughs> super, super, super tight budget, but pretty entertaining. I definitely want to watch the Rift Track. Well, actually, I think Mystery Science Theater covered it. It's pretty fun. I, I enjoyed the stop-motion alien dinosaur creatures. Yeah, but a few of the explosion effects were pretty cool. But otherwise, Laser Blast is kind of a, a trippy, meandering bit of a uh, bit of fun. But um, and I also watched I'm trying to watch more Santo. I watched um, Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and the Wolfman. I caught it on Tubi. It was a great looking print. Looks looks really good actually. But it was clearly dubbed much, much later, like recently. It feels recent, and the, the dubbing was, was way, way, way off. And, and it's funny, it made me chuckle at several points. But I'm sure you guys have seen that one. I'm assuming you guys have seen it. I also watched uh, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, which came out last year, which is pretty good. I enjoy his work. This was a little different, pretty entertaining. It's a pretty disturbing content, uh, frankly. You'll know it uh, when you see it. But pretty stylish and definitely worth worth a watch. And that's all I got for now. I hope I'm coming in clear. It is a super hot day on a Friday in early August, and I am outside making a run to, of all places, the wine shop. All right, Jonathan, great to hear from you. Thank you so much. Not a lot of love for Phantasm, but not hate. And I have to admit, Phantasm is one of these quirky films. It seems like with each viewing, I like that more and more. I'm not really understanding it anymore, but... It's a fun flick. There's a lot to love about that movie. That is a franchise that you just kind of have to go with it because it throws a lot of ideas, never really gives you any solid answers, and certainly some love for the fog. And I, too, would love to go to that that lighthouse. The steps might kill me. Going down, I think it'd be okay. It said going up, man, that would be a killer. And I did read I think it's like 40 mile an hour winds are greater. They sometimes close the steps. And I can see that because a big gust of wind comes along and you're tumbling down, what, 300 flights. It's like, how many stories up is that? That's crazy. Great to hear from you, Jonathan. It's interesting. We're all like have a preconception about Phantasm before we watch it again. Richard, you say you like it better each time. That's the same with me. In fact, this, we'll talk about it more, but I liked it this time more than I ever have. So that's interesting that Jonathan goes in thinking he might like it more and then doesn't. I also want to mention last night in Soho. I also watched that, gosh, it sounds like about the same time you did, Jonathan. And I liked it. It didn't really stick with me. Like when I listened to your voicemail, I thought, oh yeah, I watched that a couple weeks ago. I enjoyed it. 
it was very stylish. I loved the the concept of it. The visuals, Edgar Wright is fantastic, but it just didn't stick with me. I'd recommend it. I mean, there's no reason not to watch it if you just need a couple hours of entertainment. That's my opinion on that. We're going to tell people now how to call and leave a voicemail like Jonathan did. We have a phone number, 616-649-2582. You can look at it as 616-649-LOVE. Oh, my goodness. An embellishment. Keep things fresh. (laughs) I wanted to give a shout out to someone we mentioned last time, our 200th member, Frederick Cooper. He is an artist. He has published a couple of books of his artwork, and he sells prints. He does amazing work. And I think, you know, there, there's a couple artists that we, we've talked about that are within the, the Monster podcast community. Daniel Horn being one. B-Movie Cast gave away a lot of prints of Daniel Horn. Mark Maddox, of course, we know, does amazing work. Frederick Cooper, in his own style, does some amazing work as well. Strongly encourage everyone to, to go to his site, frederickcooperarts.com. Check out his work. He's just uploaded some new prints. They're reasonably priced. And he said some incredibly kind words that I, I really do want to share here. Uh, he and I had some conversation. He shared with us that he is inspired in his work by what we do on this show. It made me very emotional and made me speechless, mm. which tells you how, how much this touched me. When I started my blog, when we started this podcast, it was never about Patreon donations or awards and not disparaging anyone who does either one of those or gets an award. And at some point down the road, we do, that would be awesome. But it was never the reason we started. You and I sitting here talking about movies because we would do that anyway. And along the way, we've met some amazing people. We've got quite a nice following that we've established in almost five and a half years now of doing the show. But to have an artist say that they are inspired by listening to what we do, that really touched me more than any donation or award ever could. I know he's listening. He listens to the show. Thank you, Mr. Cooper, for sharing those words. They really, truly meant the world to to me and I know to to you, Jeff, as well. That's all I need to come back next month. Well said. Oh my gosh, this fog has really slowed us down. I mean, we're pulling into the drive-in now and it's already, there were already seeing coming attractions and commercials and things. So uh, let's pull and get our spot. Pretty soon we'll be starting out with the fog. Yes. The the movie fog, not the real fog. Hopefully we can see the fog yeah. through the fog yes yes with well, that light of the projector will cut through it like a saber yes as they say the show is about to begin it's showtime folks enjoy the show john carpenter's the fog this is kb antonio bay Stevie Wayne here, and let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today, and keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. 
100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unnatural came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. ago, between midnight and one, something evil came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Who's there? The fog. Antonio Bay has a curse on it. We're all cursed. Some water got in here, but something off a cold pin. I think I'll go to Vancouver now. Fog now. It should be right outside my door now. Oh, there's something different about this fog. Dan, stay away from the door. Someone listen to me. Get inside and lock your doors. Close your windows. There's something in the fog. from the fog. <laughs> from the creator of Halloween, the ultimate experience in terror and suspense. John Carpenter's The Fog, starring Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, John Houseman, Janet Leigh as Kathy Williams, and Hal Holbrook as Father Malone. The fog. What you can't see won't hurt you. It will kill you. Between midnight and one, it will find you. Help me out. My arms are full here. Will you grab my popcorn real quick so I don't spill the drinks? Absolutely. Yeah. Bring the popcorn here. Okay. All right. Well, here you go. All right. So we just saw the fog. Let's talk about this movie. What did you think about it? Well, you know. My gosh, I'm it scared not me. Sure, we want to answer that after the movie. Uh, well, let's wait a few minutes so that when we open the door, it's a false scare and there's no one there. Yeah, that'll work. Uh, okay, let's see. Guys, guys, let me in. That Steve? Sounds like, sounds like Steve. All right. All right, let's let him in. Guys. Whoa. Whoa, what are you Mr. doing here? I don't know what the hell just happened. I'm over at. Edgar Allan Poe's grave, because we're doing a tour. This fog comes in. I mean, I couldn't barely see a tombstone. I was almost tripping around. I thought I got out of the graveyard. And the next thing I know, I'm seeing all these cars around here. And I saw you guys' car. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's Jeff and Rich. I got to get over there. Thank God. Well, what the hell is going on? I mean, I saw the fog earlier tonight at home. I go out to see, you know, because they had that little saying from Edgar Allan Poe. Like, hey, you know, let's, there's a tour. Let's go do the tour. And the next thing I know, I'm here. Where is here? I was going to ask, do you even know where you are or when you are? I mean, well, Rich, you want to get him up to speed? Yeah, you're in Grand Island, Nebraska, and it's <laughs> 1980. No, we, come on, man. Come on. 
<laughs> we, we broke out the DeLorean. We, we were doing our drive-in, you know, our, we go to the different drive-ins during the summer and we're at the Grand Island Twin Drive-In Theater. And it's, it's a dusk to dawn show tonight. And I know this is going to sound weird, but we just watched The Fog too. It's, it's, it's playing. It's a double feature that we're, we're watching The Fog and Phantasm. And Jeff and I, we're, we're ready to munch on some popcorn. We got the intermission going on and we're going to start talking about the fog. Yeah, just take a look around. Look at the the hair. I mean, this is the 80s. <laughs> well, I can't really see much of anything with this fog, Jeff. I mean, come well, on. <laughs> I mean, I, at least I mean, we can yeah. see the screen. But yeah, it is pretty foggy. I'm surprised Jeff found his way back from the car. Well, they said they're delaying the next film because the fog's so strong, you know. So, uh, uh, mm. you know, they can't show. They can't show. What you say? It's Phantasm? Yeah. The, yep. Oh, I love that movie too. I've seen that movie, but it's just this. This is just really weird. I mean, I swear to God, guys, I was in Baltimore, walking around the Poe's grave, and the next thing I know, I'm up in here. <laughs> it's weird to walk through Nebraska. You're like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is not Field of Dreams right now. <laughs> I gotta say, maybe this is a dream within a dream. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Rich, it must be us. Our power drew him here somehow i can't imagine how else it could have happened we'll just go with the flow you know hey well, we're, we're here you're yeah here. since you're here you want to talk about the movie with us oh yeah well, like i said just I, i've seen it multiple times i saw it back when it was first released in the movie theaters in 1980 which i seem to be back again um <laughs> and i just watched it again on tv you know on my blu-ray you saw it in the theaters originally, Jeff. I mean, did you, how did you first see it? Yeah, I did. And I've, I've got, a, I wouldn't say a story, but a little bit of history here that I want to share because this was John Carpenter's next theatrical movie after Halloween, which yeah. I absolutely loved. This was the peak of my, I don't know what you'd call it, but I was buying every monster magazine you know i was writing reviews for the high school newspaper i i was really big into horror and the fog was a big thing i mean i read that avco embassy the the studio that put it out they spent a million dollars on the movie but three times on advertising and promotion and i believe that because i to this day have magazines cinefantastique two issues of famous monsters four issues of Fangoria that had articles and features on the fog. I anticipated this movie greatly. There's one particular magazine, and I think this is interesting, sort of placing it in a timeline perspective. It was Warren Magazine's Presents, the horror movie yearbook from 1981. The fog was one of those movies. But I wanted to just rattle off these movies to give you an idea of what else was coming out at this time. Motel Hell, The Shining, Alien. Friday the 13th, Saturn 3, The Changeling, Fade to Black, The Orphan, Silent Scream, Without Warning, The Hearse. Those are the other movies that were advertised in this magazine. There's one other one I want to mention real quickly because I'd never heard of it. And I thought, oh, what magazine did I pick up? It's called Becoming. And from what I could tell by reading, this was a movie called Burned at the Stake that actually wasn't released until 82. So there's all this hype for the movie, and at the time when I saw it, I don't want to say I was disappointed, but it was different from Halloween. It wasn't another Halloween. There's similarities that I'm sure we'll talk about, 
the only part the first time I saw it that even scared me was at the very beginning when the fog's going through the town and the gas pump handle falls on the ground. I jumped. That's the only time I jumped in the movie. So that was my initial, like I say, I don't want to say I was disappointed. It just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Sadly, I'm, I'm a couple of years younger than you guys. And my mom and dad definitely did not let me see this kind of stuff in the movie theater. I mean, I could not see an R-rated movie until it was I was 17. However, we had HBO. And that's where I watched all my movies. Because although I couldn't have HBO in my room... As I've talked about, I had a little black and white TV. I had cable, and all you had to do was turn the dial just a little bit when you turned to channel 15, and the little scrambling back then would clear up and instant a little bit of snow, but that's how I watched all these great horror movies, and that's how I first watched The Fog. It was it was on HBO and, and watched it multiple times but not as much as others. And then a long time went before I, I saw it again. In recent years, I've, I've been kind of going back into this, you know, in fact, just watched it not too long ago. Can either I, of I, you remember how you took it the first time you watched it? You, I bet you didn't have the baggage that I was carrying when I saw it. Steve, like when you saw it, do you remember your initial reaction? When I saw the movie in 1980, of course, you know, I saw Halloween prior. I remember this one. I remember it had a low, well, I can't actually, Halloween did not have a high body count either, but it's, um, so neither one of them had these huge body counts. I remember being generally spooked because it was the ghost story, you know, so it's the ghost stories, you know, you never know where they could pop up. I mean, yes, they knocked at the door, but technically they're a ghost. They could just pop up inside the house. They're spiritual or, or spectacle, so to speak. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Not as much as Halloween. I enjoyed Halloween right. better. But I do know my son, Ben, he's seen both. When he saw them both the first time, he enjoys the fog better. He says the fog is much more scarier, <laughs> atmospheric, and he says way better than Halloween. This is his favorite John Carpenter film. I, I will kind of say, I second that to a degree, not to the extreme, but I prefer the fog over Halloween. I love Halloween, but there's something about the fog that I've always I've always loved. And with each viewing, I just I love it even more. There's just so many little things about it from the the jazz radio station playing at night to, you know, Adrian Barbeau's incredibly sexy voice on the radio. But her being isolated, you know, in the lighthouse, you've got kind of these different pockets of people and their stories. Of course, they all kind of merge just several things about the fog that that separated and i do think it's in some ways i definitely enjoy it more than than halloween steve on subsequent viewings how has your opinion of it changed gotten better it's pretty much been the same i enjoy it i i, I love the atmosphere that it gets through and i'm seeing it as an adult compared to seeing it when i was 12 years old and i think that's another reason why halloween holds up so much for me i saw that when i was 10 I'm way too young to see that movie. Uh, <laughs> but that's what happens. You have a brother that's eight years older than you. You can get in to see things that you normally would not be able to see. And your mom didn't, it was like, ah, you know, your brother, you know, whatever. <laughs> see, that's the thing. I didn't have any, any older siblings that, that would actually help plead my case. Rick did not have to plead a case. It was just pretty much, oh, I'm going to take Steve to see this. 
because he knows I like horror films or, or monster movies type things. And my mom was like, okay. She really didn't care. I was raised in Sparta. You know, it was just, you know, if, if you survive, you survive. If you don't, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way, shape or form that I think this is better than Halloween. And I don't even think it's as scary. I mean, it's definitely creepy. It has atmosphere. And that just may be because to me, Halloween is real. There really could be a, a slasher. Ghosts, eh. I mean, they're, those aren't my favorite. I, I'm not going to say I don't believe in them, but it's just very, uh, I'm more likely to be stalked by a serial killer than I am a ghost. So Halloween sticks out. And for me, the more times I watch it, I want to like it more. And I don't dislike it more, but I just, I become just more appreciative of it. The technical aspects of it that that I recognize and I see, I appreciate it, but it really doesn't affect me on an emotional level. I don't think it has the same suspense that Halloween has, except this time I noticed, and I had kind of forgotten the end scene with Adrian Barbeau on the top of the lighthouse. That's very suspenseful. That comes close to matching Halloween in, in suspense, but I don't find the rest of it terribly suspenseful. I don't think it was made to be suspenseful. You know, but Halloween, in my opinion, I mean, Halloween was that way, and I really enjoy yeah. Halloween. I could stick that baby in any time and I'm always riveted and I agree with you this one has that slow build up where it gets you to get to town people get them separated I think the the biggest negative to me is that they're only going to kill six and they, they established that very early on I think that because then you start to realize when five people are killed well there's only going to be one more and you really lose a lot of like what whichever one of them bites it next the other one's Somehow they're all, I guess the ghosts are all connected as they saw when the end, when he gets to cross, they all disappear. So whichever one they kill next, they're all going to just disappear. Well, and that's the thing you do. I don't realize, you know, that six, but that's never like really reinforced. And you assume that the ones killed are the descendants and, you know, you can go with that. That's fine. But it would have been nice to like, know, oh, that babysitter was the granddaughter of one of them or something you know i well i guess though that makes you like you don't know who's going to get killed so that is kind of interesting the other thing I, I like when i say i noticed the technical is and i don't think people talk enough about the cinematographer dean cundy because he did halloween as well and to be able to show somebody just come out of the darkness they've been standing there all along but then all of a sudden they just emerge that takes technical skill to make that happen and that was dean cundy and this was shot in panavision you know sort of the wider screen still a low budget film but that was like apparently something john carpenter wanted to do there's one shot that i think is just terrific it's when adrian barbo is driving to the lighthouse and the camera is on the road with her coming towards them it pivots around and you see the beach wide angle beautiful shot you don't even really think about it but when it comes 90 degrees then you see her car the back of it yeah and that is a fantastic shot so those are the things that i notice that are technical more than emotional the, the scene where the uh, on the ship and where uh the one guy is on kind of inside the other two guys have been have been killed already one of the the ghosts as you say emerge out of the fog and into the doorway that that was a that was a beautiful shot the way that was that was played out because that's yeah very creepy when it's just like he just kind of emerges, you know they're there already, but yet still a, a really good 
a really good effect. And I think to going back to the suspenseful part, yeah, the, the most suspenseful part is that, you know, Adrian Barbeau on top of the lighthouse, because there's nowhere for her to go. If you backtrack and you think your first time seeing the movie, and if you picked up on the, the body count part, there's legitimate possibility Adrian Barbeau might be the next victim. I do feel that establishing that body count does limit you a little bit because now you know like, okay, well, there's only so many people are going to die, but there is, there's a plot hole, right? Because obviously they're going for the descendants, as you mentioned, although that's never really called out because there still should be a lot of people at the at that gathering that are out there in the fog because they were trying to get them in and out, but the fog was coming in. And I'm like, all those people didn't get home before the fog arrived. So obviously if they were just looking for bodies, that would have been the place to go. And the fog hit that hit those people before. And how many people died on the seagrass? Three. Three. There was the there was three of them were all together on that. I don't think they ever established the descendants of Miriam when they say it. And because otherwise it doesn't make any sense because Adrian Barbeau's character is from Chicago. So she's not even originally from there. So, so why would they be going oh, So you're her. saying it's just six people. That's the way the movie plays because, but at the end, they do say the six descendants. You know, they say, but they never really established it. They never, as Rich said, they never fleshed out like how, how they figured anything out with the sailors, the, the guys on the ship. It was pretty much victims of opportunity because why would they chase after the boy or Adrian Barbeau if they weren't descendants? But if they're yeah. from a different state, I mean, it's kind of not really clear why. Yeah, there's, they- there's, some, there's some plot inconsistencies there. And I hmm. think that I just always assumed. I also questioned why the one difference was the, the third victim from the seagrass, how he's in the morgue and comes back to life. I mean, yeah, it makes for a nice creepy little scene, right? Coming off the table and, and obviously he, he hits the floor and he writes the three down, but he was dead, clearly established that he was dead. He comes back to life. They don't really explain that. That's something they obviously wasn't touched on with any of the other victims. And why did he come back? You know, what, what was the point? Well, it's uh, like the ghost messing with a lot of the other stuff in the town, like the chairs moving and other stuff. It's I'm when it gets to supernatural, I'm willing yeah. to let certain things go. Yeah, like, yeah, no. And have no problem. But one thing I wanted to bring up, when they talked about the victims, you know, because the board changes that six must die. And Adrian Bobo's character tells that to Tom Atkins character, you know, this is the weird thing with this board and that kind of stuff. He does say later on, well there's been this person, that person, and they got, we got five, you know, there's going to be one more. And that's on the, how Holbert's character is like, well, I'm, I'm the direct descendant, you know, of the father. And he's pretty much as you would hope a, a man of the cloth would do, take, like try to sacrifice himself. He's older, you know, why will one of these younger people die if it's only going to be one more, especially because his descendant, his, an, his ancestor um, had, did, the, did the deed you know, was part of that party. He's the only one we directly know is in the movie, you know, from the movie that's not, you know, tied in. So I think when they reshot, because there was reshoots at this movie where they reshot one third of it, I think the through line of Descendants probably got tossed 
or, or edited out to have more impact with the movies that were coming out now to up the scare factor and the body count, um, but with how, how people are getting taken out. So I think that was probably what got lost in the process because they had that small budget where they could only do so much. And these are the reshoots because it sounded like they spent a million on the film and they only had like maybe a hundred thousand to do the reshoots. It doesn't really bother me. It's just, I think they should never establish it at six. I think it would have been great yeah. if they never knew the number that he figures out it's the gold that they want. He gives it back and they could still have him come back and kill him because he was a direct descendant of the one of the ones that did him in and they could still have that final kill but that would have made it more interesting and then if you would have heard reports about other towns people being killed you didn't have to see them but then you would have been man they're really taking out a lot of people in this town uh i think that could have held up so you didn't have to show all of them but you could have established it and then anybody was fair game and took yeah, almost like a night of the living dead type circumstance. That oh yeah, the whole town is being assaulted from all different angles because of the fog. So you're talking Father Malone, and I, I want to ask both of you what how you think this would have affected the movie. Supposedly, Christopher Lee was mm-hmm. offered the role of Father Malone, and ultimately it went to to Hal Holbrook. Obviously, two vastly different actors who would have approached the role very differently. How do you think Christopher Lee would have been in that role of Father Malone? And how do you think it would have potentially changed the way the movie played out? My initial thought is it just would be completely different. He would be just be more sinister and you'd maybe he wouldn't be such a simpering drunk. He might be more sort of a villain and like getting what he deserves. That's my first impression. Steve, what do you think? Christopher Lee plays so many villains that you would automatically think that way. How Holbrook, you can believe, though he has played villains in the past and Dirty Harry movie and stuff like that, you can believe him to be a good guy or a bad guy, the way he was playing it. Christopher Lee, his height would be more physically imposing. If he was to be in that, I think they probably would have been written a little bit differently. I think it might have gone a different direction a little bit, where maybe he knew more about it and did not want to give up the gold or something. And, you know, and yeah. off. I don't know. It's always hard when you get those what if scenarios. This person's originally cast and this is the person it could have been. This is the film we got. And we'll never know which way Christopher Lee would have played it and how John Carpenter would have filmed it and maybe adapted the screenplay, him and Deborah Hill, to having Christopher Lee do the performance. I really enjoyed the way Hal Holbrook played the character. I think it works for what he was asked to do up but Hal Holbrook to me is one of those great actors such a great character actor when he's given those roles things like that where he can really just find that line and make it work yeah, I think Christopher Lee could not have done Father Malone the way Hal Holbrook did like you said he would have done it differently they would have written it differently that part of the film would have played out I think vastly different and I liked what Hal Holbrook did with Father Malone wish we would have seen maybe a little more of him you don't think of hal holbrook as being a horror star but he did do creep show you know a couple of years later he did a film called rituals which i've never seen i saw something else where kurt russell was maybe offered a part and i'm like assuming he would be playing the tom atkins role and again i think that would have changed things speaking of tom atkins what do you all think of him like as an actor and in this part 
there's a lot of people who love Tom Atkins. And, you know, I find him entertaining. I don't know that I would place him on a pedestal as saying, oh, my God, it's Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins has a way in his movies. You know, he, he was in a lot of films around this time period, you know, Escape New York, Creep Show, Halloween 3, Night of the Creeps. I just want to say I didn't buy it. I mean, I just couldn't see Jamie Lee Curtis jumping into bed with him. I don't think he was right. And you've got me thinking, what would Kurt Russell have been like in that? Jeff, you're always saying because it doesn't have the mustache. Now, if he had the mustache. <laughs> there you we go. Oh, no. You would have had no well, issues Well, you know, he is, a, a, <laughs> he is sort of an everyman. I mean, he's yeah. more average Joe, I think, than... Well, that's definitely more her character. I mean, obviously, she's she's kind of private, but yet also a little adventurous because she's hitchhiking and that's a little danger involved in that. So we don't really get to know her character too much other than you you get, she's just kind of traveling and she's looking for that big break in in the, you know, with her art and then decides to hang out here in Antonio Bay and kind of definitely latches on to him in the midst of this crisis. Honestly, with all the crazy stuff going on, if I was her, I probably would have been leaving Antonio Bay. I thought it worked out fine. He was, this was the start of a kind of golden age in horror and what, a lot of the movies that people remember him for and, and love him for. You mentioned we don't the- learn much about Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Do we learn much about anyone? A fantastic cast. I'm not knocking them. And a lot of characters, I don't know if you'd call it an ensemble piece, but like who is the main character? I suppose it's Adrian Barbeau. I don't think there is a main character. I think the one we learn probably the most about is Adrian Barbeau's character, because we learn, you know, that her backstory that they moved from Chicago. She owns the lighthouse. Yeah. He works, she has nobody else to work with, but she basically works like, they seem like 16 hour days uh, or whatever it is, you know, at the, st- at the, at the radio station that she really cares about her son. So we learn, I think hers is the only character besides maybe um, Father Malone. Father Malone, we learn through the, the back, a little bit of the backstory, like he's a drunkard. He makes you wonder about different things because the way that the other people are talking about him, through the dialogue, the other townspeople, we learn a little bit about Father Malone's character being a little bit different. Also, we learn he's cheap because Bennett, played by John Carpenter during that little cameo at the beginning, is like, yeah. can I get paid today? Oh, you don't have to come at four o'clock tomorrow. Why don't you come at six? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's so there's a, there's a little thing there where he's uh, maybe drinking the money, you know, that he's bringing into the church and he's not paying the guy that's uh, doing the maintenance. So he's going to yeah. have a heck of a mess to clean up later that, on the 22nd. Um, <laughs> 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 Don't won't get paid. I love the scenes with Adrian Barbeau's character, Stevie, in, in the, the radio station. That's a a nice little flashback to that time period. Just the small little radio station listening to the the cassette tape of the radio bumpers you know which is something most radio stations really don't do anymore that was something that oh it was a nice little flashback and just the way the whole radio station was running stuff obviously we live in a very different time so seeing that I love that and uh, I love the jazz music too it kind of a perfect setting jazz you know and in a foggy night and the lighthouse and stuff and all of that I thought worked really well together. Then of course you've got her real voice. And then as soon as the microphone, she goes into the sultry voice, you know, which was a thing back in the sixties and seventies, a lot of late night female DJs 
I read that the Nightbird was a popular DJ from the 60s that she patterned herself after. If they did a remake today, they could get Delilah to play her. Is Delilah still a thing? I don't know. She is. Yeah. She, I don't, well, I don't know if they're, I was going to say, I don't know if they're repeats because she's like been around forever, but I heard her recently when I went to see my mom. There's one thing I wanted to go back to what Rich said earlier when he was talking about, when you guys were talking about um, Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Atkins' character hooking up in bed. And he said, oh, like in the 80s. I always look at when the films that comes out in 1980 or 81, like the, like the very beginning of a decade, they're really following the mores and the culture of the prior decades. So this is more That's like true. late 70s. And of course, the 70s were known for a lot of um, hookups and things like that to happen real oh, quick and easy. So I think it, it, it's a little, you know, a little different because when you point. think 80s, you're thinking of a different type of cultural standard than you would get if you thought about the 70s. So I think of it more of a late 70s film that came out because it was filmed, what, in 79 and it came out in 1980. So it was filmed in the 70s, but came out in 1980. We've mentioned that before on the show, how, you know, like even musically, you can't just say, well, 19, early 1980s music is vastly different than late 1980s music, but it's really more in sync with the 70s, the previous decade, much decades, you know, we think of, well, here's 1970, bam, everything changes. No, it's a bleed over from the previous and previous end of the previous decade. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's, and I'm sure there are still people hooking up randomly out there, you know. Some things never change. <laughs> no, some things yeah. never change, but you don't see it quite in that fashion like you did back in, in 1980. And hitchhiking is definitely something that, that's a, a thing that really has been kind of out of fashion. You know, that'll get you arrested in, in some states, depending on where you're hitchhiking. So, but in that 70s time frame, 60s, 70s, there, you know, that's how a lot of people travel. They hitchhiked and you think now it's like, oh, that's, you know, you're just a uh, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, you know, waiting to happen if you do that. Well, that's what all you got to do is ask the question, are you a weirdo? And you'll know right away. If you're, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's like saying, that's like saying, are you, you know, are you a serial killer? Serial killer? And he goes, oh, what are the odds of being too serious? Oh, no. When the person picks up the hitchhiker, hitchhiker goes, aren't you wearing a serial killer? And the guy goes, no, what are the odds of there being two of us? In the yeah. same Jeff, you asked a question earlier. Has my appreciation of differences in the movie changed? One thing I have to say, when I saw the movie recently, I have to agree with you. The gas station scene was so horrific. Seeing all that gasoline just pumping out (laughs) and pumping out, and it's not going into my car. And then they show the pump, and you see what it costs. You're able to do the math. Yes. tears. Tears were in my eyes. <laughs> and, and I think John Carpenter never did that when he we never knew when he filmed that. And, you know, it came out in 1980. How much hurt and and emotional and distress that causes the, us to see nowadays. Oh, that was that was painful. <laughs> yes. That's hilarious. All right. So another question I gotta ask you about I love all the characters in this. We've got you know, we've been talking about some of them, you, you know, Janet Lee as Kathy Williams and such. You've got two other characters I want to ask real quick. First, on the downside, did anyone else find the character of, I think it was Sandy, Kathy Williams' assistant, Janet Lee's assistant, did anyone else find her acting abilities and, and just her overall character borderline annoying? Just the way that she delivered some of the lines 
just didn't seem natural for me. And it's so out of place because everyone else, seasoned actors or, you know, definitely Tom Atkins, you know, being on the younger end, but still, and Jamie Lee Curtis, they were still good, you know. And then you had this character and this actress that just stood out to me. Was it just me or was that? Well, I know what you're talking about. And she's just like she was in Halloween. I was expecting her to say totally. It must be her style. I mean, it style. Was- I, I didn't notice it. It didn't really bother me. I don't know. Steve, what do you think? That's her style. Because wasn't she also in Attack uh, Precinct 13? Yes. I don't remember yeah. her in that. I haven't seen that in a while. Well, she was the lead girl. Um, she was the one who, like, she takes a bullet and just basically, like, it's like, it means nothing to her. So I think that's the way she reacts. That's just the way she she portrays stuff. She doesn't have, maybe, you could say maybe it's emotional range. Maybe that's what John Carpenter was wanting. I mean, she was supposed to be the annoying assistant so and uh, you know so i succeeded well yes she (laughs) succeeded so she was acting out the part okay is she is she a great actress i mean because she only did a limited amount of work so i think i think her acting range was maybe limited for certain roles where she could play she had to be more of a smart aleck and or tough person and uh, like attack precinct 13 she plays this tough female where she's able to get through all these problems that the way she rolls or is it the way john carpenter wanted her to play stuff it ended up she got work with carpenter so whatever it was it was working you know if if, if a director likes you and like you're doing a certain thing the other end of the spectrum i wanted to ask you about we have john houseman what really is as a almost a cameo appearance and i know that that was filmed very late because they needed to extend the running time and so they added that intro which I thought was very cool. Uh, a nice little intro. It gives us a little bit of a background of, of it. And then there's a reference to, because we have the boy is there, and then the reference to his character a little later on in the movie, although we never see him again. I love that open alley. We start with the Edgar Allan Poe quote, you know, is all that we see or seen, but a dream within a dream, which that's one of the things I remember from my first time viewing it, because I, I was starting to get into Edgar Allan Poe. And I was like, ah, that's an Edgar Allan Poe quote. And so that, that, is, that has stuck with me over the years. John Hausman's role small, but actually really stands out for me in, in, this, in this film because he's just, he's one of those guys, here's a phone book and read it and you can be entertained because he has a delivery. It would have been fun to see his character maybe come back and later on in the movie to play a part. What'd you guys think of? Fun Loved movie? it, that yeah. perfection. It's John Hausman. I mean, it sets the tone up. And that was part of the reshoots that Carpenter did because he didn't like the rough cut. So he wouldn't, because he said it didn't make sense and he had to go back and redo stuff and also saw, seeing how films had changed from when he did Halloween so quickly, you know, what was going out there in, in the um, the horror type genre. And he had to do something to make it more coherent because people just weren't understanding what was going on. So that was part of the reshoots from what I read to bring John Hausman in to, to set the groundwork. And of course, you know, Hausman's delivery, as you said, it's it's it's, pit, it's spot on. And that, that was nice that they, they retired him in later on. And that's why you knew he wasn't going to show up later now because of the reshoots. It would have been interesting that they would have had him at the end, like do an epilogue thing. But that's if you're doing a, a trilogy of stories. Well, I had read somewhere that there was, when Carpenter had a thought of, of this being other fog films that would ultimately kind of tie in with each other somehow i don't really know anything more than that and how far along that got in the thought process obviously not very far because 
this was a one and done. And I, you know, going back to my thoughts of, of why I do like this a little better than Halloween, I think it's because it's kind of a one and done. You know, it wasn't the start of a franchise. And sometimes that's kind of fun, just getting a one and done flick that didn't go through the mill because certainly Halloween and Michael Myers is there's been highs and there's been lows. Mm -hmm. Here's something I want to throw out to you guys. Knowing that Halloween, originally in John Carpenter's mind, was going to be like an anthology type series of movies. It's the Halloween three yeah. season of The Witch. Imagine if this movie, The Fog, would have been one of the series. You know, instead of taking place on April 21st, it takes place on Halloween where all this stuff happens. Would this have been a better entry than Season of the Witch? Or if this would have been the second movie after the first Halloween? You know, it's trying to get the people the idea, the concept that it's not always going to be Michael Myers, but an anthology type series of movies where it's going to be different cast, different type of thing. Could, could you imagine like Halloween, The Fog? Just throwing it out there because that was his original concept. Yeah. What would you guys think? Well, I've always loved Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. It, there's so many fun things about that movie. And I always loved the idea of that Halloween, you know, anthology. Is like, I thought that was, that was a good idea, you know, if it could have got fleshed out and seen fruition. I think there was, there was something there. And I don't really think we haven't had that, really. I mean, you know, I don't think there's ever been an attempt to try to do an anthology series that takes place on at a certain ho holiday, Halloween or whatever. I think it's an, a really good idea. And I'm surprised no one's really tapped into that. If they have, I, I'm drawing a blank on, on anyone who's ever attempted that. I think absolutely this, this could easily fit into to that idea. And I think it would have been um, definitely some things, you know, because this being Carpenter's first theatrical film following Halloween you know, even some of the musical cues at times. Carpenter has a sound, but this movie, I think, almost more than any of some of the other soundtracks that he did, borrows from some ideas from Halloween. There's several moments where it's like, oh, wait, is that Halloween? No, it's there and it's gone. It's You, you kind of hear it and then it's gone. And you know, composers do that all the time. I mean, it, you can hear jerry goldsmith and and you know there's a certain sound to his his things and john williams what have you i think that would have been cool and it would have had to be the second one they could not have done halloween 2 and i think if they did halloween 3 as halloween 2 that would have been the end of it because that was too different yeah but if you establish that this is what it's going to be yeah could you imagine this would have been halloween like the second movie halloween the fall then you would have halloween season of the witch because i think we really hurt season of witch because where's michael myers because you had him in the first two films and i think yeah. that's where a lot of people were really got thrown off because I, I enjoyed that movie also i'm thinking if he would have had the uh, wherewithal to put this as the second movie in the halloween anthology series then who knows what creative direction that it would have still kept going because that, that would have been fascinating you know where like how would it have gone and then of course would michael myers still be the pop culture thing i mean this, this all this this alternate reality if only there was a multitude of universes <laughs> that we could visit either. um the music which i really love the score of the the fog and i know they've had multiple versions of it come out on cd and i believe john carpenter said this is his favorite 
soundtrack, you know, favorite score. And it's just, it's just wonderful how it plays so well, even better than the Halloween music. This, this movie soundtrack fits like a glove. And I want to add to the soundtrack thing that it's more uh, varied than Halloween. Mean, Halloween is fantastic and I like it better, but it's the same thing, very repetitive. Here it's, and that's something I noticed this time, you know, sometimes it's kind of very similar, just the four notes, but I noticed when it build and it maybe goes into a different melody. I do think overall it is a better soundtrack. I'm actually going to purchase this one. I haven't purchased soundtrack, but I was listening to it. It's like, I want this one. I can just see they're listening to it in the car and it's just the, the different things, especially when it gets closer to Halloween, where again, this would have been great as Halloween too, but I already talked about that. You know, this would have been, it would have been interesting to see if it would have came at that time frame. Say coming out in February. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, we should probably start wrapping this up. I think the fog is clearing, so they're probably going to start. But um, Rich, you have anything else any about the stars or the trivia? I did want to say one thing. Uh, part of the publicity that I started this whole thing with was that I believe it was the first movie with Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis, mother and daughter, and they really played up that aspect. That was another thing that fed the hype, you know, about seeing it ahead of time. You know, the only two things I had, uh, one, uh, just interesting how, you know, two of the big stars of the film, Adrian Barbeau and Jamie Lee Curtis, never have any screen time, screen, not screen, screen time together, which I think is interesting. Um, Also, good timing that this is getting a 4K Mm -hmm. Ultra HD and Blu-ray release from Shout Factory on September 13th. The Blu-ray is still available from Shout Factory for $10 uh, with that really cool, I guess it was limited edition cover, but it's still available. The special cover is actually on my wall. That's what, when I met Adrian Barbeau at Crypticon several years ago, I got her to sign that and I got it framed. But that is coming out 4K Ultra HD for less than $30. Also, it is available to rent on Amazon Prime. If anybody wants to check it out, it is available. It's easily found to rent or to purchase. And speaking of Jamie Lee, I think what they probably should have done for me, in order to play up her working with her mom, she should have been the assistant. Because then they would have been in all the scenes together. Then instead of showing up near the end, if, unless you know Jamie Lee didn't want to be like in every scene with her mom. That would have been something interesting to see in that dynamic. Actually, she did address that in in an in a interview at the time. Actually, it's I think it's an extra on the DVD where she was totally fine with them not doing any scenes together. She was wanting to wait for the for a better film for them to actually work together. And it got me thinking, and I don't know, did they ever work together in a film? When you have an opportunity to do something, you seize that opportunity because you never know what the future is going to hold. Yeah. So it's one of those things. You could say, oh, I want a better opportunity. But hey, you could still have that better opportunity, but you could still have this opportunity. Well, that came in 1998. I'm surprised you all don't remember. They were both in Halloween H20 20 years later. 
Okay, now see, <laughs> she should have taken the fog opportunity. <laughs> I think that would have been a better way to go. We have to rewatch that to see how many scenes they're actually in. Just because they're in the movie together doesn't mean they're really That's in true. scenes together. Yeah, so I, if I, I recall, it's like one still. scene and they are together. I've been biting my tongue because we're not talking about the remake, but it is fresh on my mind. And I just want to say this one thing since it, we're talking about, interestingly... The character that Jamie Lee Curtis plays in This Fog was played by Maggie Grace. And in her character was the daughter of the woman putting on the event. So had that been true in this one, Jamie Lee would have been Janet Lee's daughter. Interesting. Did you follow that? <laughs> you know, they could have easily done that. She could have been coming to Antonio Bay for the event and ends up Getting seeing her mother, then you know, finally at the church, everything could have played out a little differently, yet still not had their, you know, yeah. So, well, just watch the 2005 version, Richard. You'll see how that plays out as we're wrapping up the you know, the intermission. Uh, I think it's like the fog might be clearing up maybe a little bit, they might be going with the next movie. Steve, you got to tell everybody back in 2022 where they can find you. Well, Diecast Movie Podcast. So if you just type in on your web search, Diecast Movie Podcast will pop right up. We do movies where the genre is decided by the roll of a die. That's why we call it Diecast. Half the episodes are interviews. Actually, maybe a little more than half now. And the other half are movie discussions. We're just finishing off the James Whale retrospective series, which both you gentlemen participated in. Jeff and I did Waterloo Bridge. And Rich did Journey's End, and you both joined me for Frankenstein. So you guys are in the first three episodes of that retrospective series. And uh, you guys will both be joining me again for our next retrospective series, which will be starting later in this year or beginning the next year, which will be the Sam Peckinpah series. Jeff's going to be doing Straw Dogs, and Rich is going to be doing Osterman Weekend. Ooh. And possibly also Major Dundee. You might be doing a double header, as they like to say. Was that the so, sequel to Crocodile Dundee? You have to watch the episode <laughs> or listen to the episode to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but since it came out before Crocodile Dundee, oh, it, must be it a was a prequel. prequel. <laughs> a prequel. Yes, yes. Major was his great grandfather from another country, and eventually he moved. <laughs> I've had some luck with some people that have joined the show for interviews. I think for the classic cars club podcast recently, Jack Hill um, director, spider baby and Foxy Brown has been on there. Uh, we've also had um, John Russo, Beverly Washburn, Richard Stanley will be coming out by the time this episode's out. Richard Stanley interview will be there. So we, we have a lot of different horror people in the background in that spot. And it's, it's been pretty nice where people, you reach out to them and they say, hey, we're going to, you know, we'll join in and that kind of stuff. Episode 100, I, you know, Land of the Lost is definitely kind of in a, within our wheelhouse, sort of, you know, it's 1970s. Well, Jennifer, he was in, Je Wesley Yor was in Jennifer. Absolutely. Also the Toolbox Murders. Yeah. So he's That's got some good. good horror cred, absolutely. Now so, you're yeah. you're picking and choosing episodes from that podcast that our listeners might be interested in, but tell us about your podcast that we know everyone who listens to this would be interested in. Yes. What do you mean? Like, will that put interviews? No, I mean like Hammerama. 
oh, Hammerama. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Alistair <laughs> would kill me. Yeah. Well, Hammerama is part of the Diecast movie podcast mm-hmm. thing. So it goes out. Sure. And then Hammerama, which we've had five episodes so far, but depending on when your episode comes out, episode six might be out there. We again roll a die to decide what hammer movie genre type we're going to do. And the way we break it up is there's Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, sci-fi, prehistoric, and the 70s. The experimental 70s, as Alistair likes to say. And, of course, you get to hear Alistair's great accent. His his voice is like ear candy. Once you hear it, you're addicted to it. That's rich. He can't put it down. It's actually one of the few things he keeps up with. He he has to get his camera episodes in jeff listens to it while he goes back and forward to work and uh, we try to keep them under an hour you know 45 minutes or so to an hour and that but in length because we want to hit their move hit and move so to speak about those different movies and try to bring a different perspective to it and um, every one of those episodes is in the uh, top 20 of our over 100 episodes in place so all of them have done very well and we've got a lot of love in the hammer lovers face group of certain people. So we've got in love with the, the hammer aficionados. We're like the, uh, the gateway drug, I guess you could say to the hammer films, hammer heart. Each and every interview is unique and different. And, and as I've said before, I'll say again, you have a, a very unique way of getting people to engage in a, what is a very natural conversation because you're talking about things that they normally don't get a chance to talk about. And that's what gets them engaged and excited because they're like, I'm talking about stuff that I normally don't get asked about. And that's why it just becomes a very natural conversation. Highly recommended. Steve, have you given any thought to how you're going to get home? You kind of came well, here unexpectedly. Well, I, I see this tall guy walking out there. I could see him. Some fog's lifting. Hey, wait a minute. I see a ball. I, I, it's a snitch. I'm going to go get the snitch. I got. <laughs> I don't know that you should be laughing. Why I know I'm laughing at our friend's demise. That's that's actually not good. Let's go. With, we better go investigate that. Let's take a we break. Um, we'll be right back. Now, just one minute away from the beginning of our next feature. For your convenience, our refreshment stand will remain open after the feature begins, so you still have time to add to the fun of watching the movie. Before we begin our next feature, we'd like to remind you to replace your speaker before leaving the theater. If it is accidentally damaged, please notify someone at the refreshment stand. Again, thank you for coming out to the drive-in tonight. As you leave, please drive carefully and... Come back soon.
phantasm? Is it an illusion? Phantasm. Is it an evil? Is it a fantasy? scare you. You're already dead. Phantasm. All right. I think I've got the rest of Steve wiped off the windshield. Uh, were you able to see Phantasm okay? I was. I, you know, that's horrible. I'm, the nervous laughter came out of me uh, uh-huh. witnessing our our dear friend just gets splattered everywhere. Hopefully this all works out. And yeah, I can't wait to get back to 2022 and make sure he's okay. I, I'm sure he will be. I, I'm sure he will be. He's got episodes of diecast to get out and mm. he, you gotta, gotta keep cranking those out. Yeah. I think he'll be okay, but yeah, yeah. I yeah. gotta get the splatter off. Gotta get the, the remains of Steve off the windshield, but <laughs> We were able to see Phantasm. Yeah, and before we talk about that, let's uh, do our new thing. If we weren't here, what other entertainment might we have been experiencing this evening? Assuming this is the first weekend of August in 1980, um, the top 10 songs for the week ending August 2nd. First of all, are we going to recognize most of these this time? Or am I going to have to look up on YouTube and see what Uh, I I was able to recognize all of them. Okay. If there's a song in here you don't recognize, I would be surprised. All right, hit us. Number 10, Sailing by Christopher Cross. Mm. You know, I actually really like that song. Ooh. Very nice, peaceful, I pleasant. Don't like you that song. Number nine, Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones. Number eight, now this might be the only song that you might not know, but I think you probably do. Tired of Towing the Line by Rocky Burnett. No. I could sing it for you, but I'm not. Mm, that's okay. Number seven, not one of my favorites from this guy, but it was a big hit for him. Coming up by Paul McCartney and Wings. Number six, again, you should know four, five, and six if you were listening to pop radio at the time. Number six, Take Your Time, Do It Right by the SOS Band. I probably know it. Okay. I I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Number five, Shining Star by the Manhattans. Know that one. Number four, Cupid, I Have Loved You for a Long Time. Cupid slash I've Loved You for a Long Time. 
by the spinners. Yep. Okay. I know you know the top three. Number three, Little Genie by Elton John. Mm-hmm. Number two, it was number one last week. Down a spot this week to number <laughs> two. It's still rock and roll to me by Billy Joel. And uh, number one, moving up one spot. From the Zonadu motion picture soundtrack, Magic by Olivia Newton-John. Nice. Pardon the interruption, but in the midst of editing this episode, yes, we do edit, we learned of the death of Olivia Newton-John. We certainly mean no disrespect by the comments we made at the time we recorded. We're leaving them in because they reflect what a cultural phenomenon she really was. You're going to hear what Richard said in a moment, but I want to add that this is one of those losses that hits me really hard. I did indeed listen to her music and enjoy it when I first heard it in the 70s. Then, of course, Greece. And I love Xanadu, unironically. I always have. Olivia, I don't know if you'll run into our friends Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, Boris Karloff, or any of our other favorites in heaven. But if you do, tell them Jeff and Richard say hello. The movie and I actually really enjoyed the music. It's very uplifting music. And I love this era of Olivia Newton John. Never really been into the mid-70s, you know, hopelessly devoted kind of thing. Yeah, you know, but magic and when she did physical and stuff, she was first off, she was looking really hot around this time period. I really liked the sound that she had in this. Anyway, magic by Olivia Newton John, the number one song. For the week ending August 2nd, 1980. Keep shooting for the stars. <laughs> At the box office this weekend, the number one movie for a ninth consecutive... I, I want to say, yes, ninth consecutive week. No. There was a week that it dropped and came back. Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. And I believe at the time it was just The Empire Strikes Back. That's just true, yeah. Even though it had episode five in the the crawl, we weren't calling it that back then. Okay, so it's a good thing we're at the movies tonight. On TV, not a great night for television. If we were watching ABC television, I do remember this show, the name of it. I don't really remember watching it. 240 Robert, probably the two best options of the night, The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. Mm. The Fantasy Island... Had, a, had one of the stories had to do with two gals that wanted to go back to one million years B.C. because that's when men were men and, and they <laughs> took what they wanted. Okay. Gotta love Fantasy Island. CBS had an interesting night of programming. Walter Cronkite's Universe, which I do vaguely remember that show. It was airing its last episode. Uh, and then a made-for-TV movie called The Prince of Central Park, starring Ruth Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> As the prince? I don't know. Uh, and then a new special, riveting programming this night, What Shall We Do About Mother? <laughs> Talking about putting mother in a nursing home. Cable television was around. That's a, there's a reason why we started with cable TV, so that we wouldn't have to watch that. NBC had not one, but two repeat episodes of BJ and the Bear, and then two 
uh, half-hour sitcoms that I don't remember either of these. The Six O'Clock Follies and Good Time Harry. Holy cow. What a horrible night for television. Other than Love Boat and Fantasy Island, the rest of it was not a good night. So that's why we're at the drive-in tonight. I guess. Wow. Actually, if we would have been home on Friday night, we would have had a much better night because there was the Incredible Hulk. We had Dallas. It was on Friday nights at 9, and then they moved it up to 8 when they put Falcon Crest on at 9. How did you dig Phantasm? I came late to this film. I was aware of Phantasm for many, many years. I remember the commercials on on television for it. For some reason, this I, I don't recall this popping up on like HBO back in the day. And it may have been a rights thing or something. I just don't recall ever having an opportunity to see it. I don't recall renting it on VHS, but I was aware of it for a really long time. I finally saw this for the very first time when I bought the, the DVD. As odd as this is going to be, I don't believe that I saw Phantasm. I don't think I saw it until like maybe 13, 14 years ago. Now, I immediately loved it, and I gravitated back towards it you know, several times. And in fact, you know, besides getting a chance to see it here and on the uh, the Grand Island Twin Drive-In Theater, uh, it's also been on uh, Joe Bob on Shudder. I love this movie more each time I've seen it. I own the soundtrack and it's a great soundtrack. It's kind of like that Halloween. It can get maybe a little repetitive if you listen to it, but it actually doesn't play that much in the movie, at least the first movie. Uh, I think it's only really played a couple of times proper in the film. It, just something about it. it it's this, this almost like a, a surreal, dreamlike film because there's some things that just wouldn't seem to be reality. And of course, reality really gets thrown into to question as the movie kind of wraps up. You're not really sure, well, what happened, what didn't happen. Uh, and I think that's the part I love about it. I don't know. I think just the, the overall time period, the the spheres, the tall man. And I think the fact that the main three actors really, really weren't actors of, of any major, you know, they were not A-level actors and really have not done a lot. When you look at their film credits, I mean, Mike was played by Michael Baldwin and he only has 18 credits to his name, and that's counting the Phantasm films. Bill Thornbury plays Jody, and he was only has 10 credits. And again, that's counting Phantasm films. Mm-hmm. Reggie Bannister has done more, but he's done more only after really coming back for Phantasm too. Then he he's done a lot of smaller parts here and there. He he's he's been busy, but after the first movie, he didn't do anything. That's what I like about this is like they're not A-level actors, but they're not they're not bad actors. Mike is not necessarily a great actor. I think that adds to the charm of it. And then, of course, Angus Scrim is the tall man. We'll talk more about him. But I mean, what a what a great character. You know, if anybody's known for just one word, you know, it's that boy. Not a huge cast either. I mean, there's a lot of supporting 
characters, you know, kind of come and go, but your main cast is really small. And, and Angus Scrim was probably the most prolific actor of, of the lot. And that's not saying a lot. What's your experience with Phantasm and how, how has your experience has been? Well, I have very fond memories of seeing this in the theater on its initial release. I think I've talked in the past about how Friday night in junior high and high school, all we all went to the movie. I remember seeing Carrie and Burnt Offerings at the Esquire Theater in downtown Enid. This was a couple years later. This was at the Video Twin. And I remember which side it was on. I remember the peep there. And imagine a high school crowd. There are a lot of times for them to jump and squeal and all of that. So I remember that experience. It was very, uh, some of it was probably show, but it was very effective on this, you know, teenage crowd. So I remember that really more than I remember the movie, but I've seen it over the years. And as you say, for me, it gets better every time I loved it this time more than I ever have. And that for some reason that happens every time. It's funny that before I had seen it like multiple times, if you asked me what the thing with Phantasm was, it would be the Silver Spear. And you watch the movie, it's only in two scenes. And yet that's the main thing that I remember. As we as you start seeing the rest of the franchise, and then the, obviously the spear takes a much bigger role and, and the, the tall man plays a bigger role, you know, as the film progresses. And then you go back to the, the original, though, and how it's presented in a much more low key we really don't know much as the movie progresses. And you really don't know much at the end of this movie. There, there are film franchises that, you know, will stay fairly consistent. Some will have highs and lows, you know, some that just really go off the rails, like Hellraiser. Phantasm is this one where the first movie is clearly the best. Pretty much after that first movie, the, the franchise, I think, dips. It stays, I think, fairly consistent. But yet you never really get any answers. And there's there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense, but yet kind of looks cool. It's just the overall experience. I have fun with this franchise. It's a weird franchise that no one can really fully explain. And the first one's standalone enough that you're fine not watching any of the others. If, if you watch the first one, you're pretty much, you're done. This one, everyone talks about you know, not understanding it, not knowing what's going on. And every every time I watch it, it gets a little more clear. Now, let's cut off. I'm not talking about the ending. We'll come back to that. To me, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, and they figure it out. They are killing people to, to turn them into slaves. And there's a doorway to another planet in the mortuary. That's pretty simple. Kind of explains everything. I mean, I don't find any... I'm willing to accept that that's what happens and I don't have any, there's no ambiguity about that. Where the ambiguity comes in for me is, of course, the ending. Like, did it really happen? And I'm fine with that. And I'm fine with it being standalone because I love things like, is it a dream or did it really happen? I love those kinds of movies. So I don't have a problem with that. The ending reminds me a little bit of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, you, know, you think you've got it figured yeah. out and in your head it makes sense. And then there's a like that stinger. It's like, what? He had to have taken that from Phantasm, right to the point of coming and pulling. Uh, They're pretty similar, pretty strongly similar. Yeah, and not to the extent with the detail, but that's not even a new thing, because think of Carrie, the ending. Well, Uh, yeah, You know, so that type of, like, shock 
ending. And the thing about Phantasm is if you watch it, it's full of those types of moments, like the hands reaching up out of nowhere, coming out of the ground, grabbing the ankle. I mean, it's full of what I would call like those carry endings. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, Don Coscarelli, who wrote and directed this, had to have been inspired by Carrie, because Carrie was in 76. My question is, though, back then that worked. I mean, there was a theater full of high school kids screaming and yelling. Yeah. Today, and we've seen a lot of movies since then, but it seems a little more mechanical to me. It's like, I don't know that those still surprise me and scare me they seem just like a little bit slower and you kind of think oh yeah i see the construction of that rather than it just happening organically and that could be because i've seen it so many times also i think that's how how do you think it plays today compared to originally i think it's it's the same as if you look at say like the universal horror films in the 30s you know that supposedly you know frankenstein was shocking and stuff well, at the time, it would have been because, I mean, if, you know, Frankenstein's monster was something that really hadn't been seen. I mean, there had been some movies in the in the 20s and stuff. But, I mean, yeah, seeing a monster come to life like that, that, that was cutting edge stuff in 1930. Not cutting edge in 1939. By the time Son of Frankenstein came out, we had seen that. And so a 1930s Universal film has a harder time you know, holding up to the quote-unquote shock value compared to, say, Curse of Frankenstein from Hammer, because now we've gone from black and white to color. We're throwing in a little bit of blood, throwing in a little bit of some sex appeal. We're going to have, as Hammer did, you know, they obviously they ramped things up a little bit, much like the 70s ramped things up a little bit when you got Night of the Living Dead and The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So now the audiences are wanting something a little bit more. They're not going to be as scared by stuff they saw saw just a few years earlier because now we've seen the living dead eating people and we've seen a maniac chasing us with a chainsaw. Every time there's a, there's a, a change in horror, it's amped up a notch to where what do you need to see to, to scare you? Sometimes a simple jump scare is, a, is good enough if it's crafted well. But that's the problem is that if you've seen enough horror movies most horror movies are choreographing it and it's almost it's always funny if to not do the jump scare right when you're expecting it Mm -hmm. you're like okay he's going to open up the door the body's going to come out oh wow the body didn't come out and so now that puts you a little on edge you're like okay well now i know something's going to happen and then sometimes movies don't do anything right and you're like then you're even more on edge does a phantasm hold up I think for a modern audience, it's not going to have the jump scares. Things have changed and expectations have changed. It comes down to the story. And if you're someone who is willing to to watch a movie that's 30, 40 years old and open yourself up to that, it comes down to the writing. It comes down to the story. It comes down to how, how the actors are, are telling the tale. And that's what sells a movie. It might not be as scary like it was in 1980. 1979 i think that's kind of the way with film in general if it's a good story and if it's something you can relate to you look past some of the quirkiness of it because of the of the change in times you know the change in fashion what have you modern horror fans if they 
are open and respectful of the past, they can appreciate a movie like Phantasm, maybe not be scared by it like they would something today, but appreciate the story that's being told and how it's being presented in the filmmaking and all of that. And that's where I think a movie like Phantasm is absolutely still as relative today as it was when it was released. The jump scares aside, there's just enough interesting scenes that are, you know, the silver spear, the... What is more terrifying than you're laying on your back in the cemetery doing it with a pretty blonde girl, and all of a sudden she changes into Angus Scrimm? (laughs) (laughs) That is horrifying in any decade. (laughs) You yourself are already going down a path if you're deciding to to get it on in a cemetery. Yes, that'd be absolutely terrifying to... Let's see Angus Scrim lying on top of you. Hello, boy. To see him lift a coffin by himself and put it in the car. What He's else? What are some of the character. other scenes that got that are still scary that don't rely on the jump scares? Yeah, I mean, like the scene where he's walking down the street slowly and then stops in front of the ice cream truck and just kind of turns and and just kind of closes his eyes and he's just like, it's almost like he's just inhaling the Mm -hmm. cold air, you know, it was super effective in this movie because you're just thinking, you know, the dead, they're cold. If you think about, you know, a mortuary, you know, it's just, you, you think of like the bodies have to be kept a little colder before they get put in the, the creepiness of it. And I, I have been in a funeral home when, there was not anything going on. I don't think I've ever talked about it on this show, but I had an experience that has made me never want to go in a funeral home in in off hours ever again. I was having to to talk to a gentleman who owned a funeral home in Paris, Texas. He was a friend of my father's, a business associate, I should say, and he was basically the godfather of Paris. I had to go to him basically to see if he could help me find a job. And he was sitting behind this desk and, you know, I'm in a chair and it's just a, it's a, the whole experience. I may have talked about this on the show before, but it was just very creepy. And whenever I see Phantasm, it takes me back to that rainy morning in the, in the funeral home. And I'm thinking, no way. I just, my experiences in funeral home are very limited, thankfully, but it's it's always that that house and that image that I have because it was it was a big grand white house that was a funeral home. And so when I see that house, I'm like, no way, I'm not going in. I don't care, you know. So I was like, you you want to do that thing where you're screaming at the characters? What are you doing? Going and just leave them alone. Leave them alone. The thing you mentioned about the tall man walking in slow motion, and that's very creepy. That is, and I think in other scenes, he maybe walks in slow motion. That makes it 10 times more terrifying when he's chasing Michael, I think, and he's going really, really fast. Yes. that I like that contrast. I thought that was really cool. And Angus Scrim, you know, first off, what a name, you know, I mean, what a, you know, he even made for horror films. You know, he was born in Kansas City. I read that, yeah. I, didn't I, I did that, not but... know that until, and actually, this episode is, is going out really close to his birthday, August 19th, 1926. He died before the last film got released, but he was able to do 
he looked a little different. I remember in that fifth, fifth film. I think he had maybe gained a little bit of weight. I think he was suffering from some some health issues, and you know, thankfully they they got that film. And in my mind, there should never be another Phantasm movie. There should never be a remake because you're going to be putting someone. Yes, you could find someone who might look like the tall man or whatever, but he owns that role, much like I think personally, like Robert Englund owns the role of Freddy Krueger. I don't know that they would ever attempt a Phantasm reboot, but then again, it's Hollywood, so who knows? I think Don Coscarelli is done with the franchise. This film was, was, it was made on weekends. Don Coscarelli rented the equipment. It was made over the course of like a year. And then I think it, from, I'm trying to follow the timeline is like, I think like the post-production took almost a year before it got out into theaters because this movie was filmed mostly in 1977. It was finished in 77. And then it didn't get released in theaters until March 28th of 1979. A very long production time from point A to point B. You know, Mike Baldwin, who played Mike, he's only has 18 film credits. Interestingly enough, with only 18 credits, he's an acting teacher. Hmm. I think he's living in Austin. I don't know if he's still there or not, but he's an acting teacher. Bill Thornbury only had 10 credits. I believe he teaches music in Northern California. And he's also, or was at one point, a staff songwriter for 20th Century Fox. So when you watch this movie and he starts into sitting there at midnight, which I actually always kind of thought that was a catchy tune. I kind of liked it. I, there was it somewhere where somebody said it was a joke. He's like, you wonder how many of his students ask, you know, about sitting here at midnight. Reggie Bannister, you know, once he got back into acting, has done other things. He was in Bubba Hotep and Wishmaster. Michael Baldwin and Bill Thornberry are pretty much retired from acting. I think they would come back for a Phantasm movie, but that's probably about the only thing they would do. And then Angus Grimm, he died January 9th of 2016. And he did some other film other horror films. He was in I Sell the Dead. He was in Chopping Mall. But he had 57 film credits, so hmm. he, he did some other stuff. You mentioned the music scene. I liked how the tuning fork thing is not heavy-handed at all. It could have been so really pointing on that. So, you know, okay, this is going to come back. This means something. They didn't do that. So I thought I liked that, that that was sort of really organic. Yeah. I also like that, like, at the center of this is a sweet little story. I mean, this poor kid, his parents died tragically. Yeah. Uh, his brother's taking care of him. His brother's getting ready to leave him got abandonment issues i mean that's at the core of it on one hand if it is all a dream there's perfectly a explanation why he would be having dreams like this but i think that helps a lot to have that sort of backbone of it there's some sort of structure around which these crazy things can happen and somehow mean something there's a lot of standalone imagery in this film. It's like random scenes that yet somehow all kind of interconnect things that, well, like when he goes to the fortune teller, that whole sequence. And there's things that are implied, the whole fear thing. At, at first you're thinking, well, is she like, is she a con artist? The, and you kind of get the feel that maybe, but then the box did disappear. Mm-hmm. So you're like, well, but how, how did she pull that off? 
Phantasm is, is there's the remastered Blu-ray, which you can get by itself. Then there's another Blu-ray where it's paired with Phantasm 2. Then there's the Phantasm Sphere collection, which has like all five. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about, and that's when he goes, Michael goes to the antique store. His brother drops him off there. One of the many times he tries to get him out of the action and tells him to stay. And he finds an old picture of the tall man. In the picture, the tall man turns and starts moving. And I don't think that's a unique idea. I think Burnt Offerings had something like that. And I'm pretty sure didn't The Shining as well. But Shining would have been after. I think you're right. Interesting you mentioned Burnt Offerings because the exterior uh, was actually from Burnt Offerings. Really? Yeah. Huh, I didn't know but, that. That's yeah, so, cool. but, you know, I thought they did a really good job with the mausoleum. It looked real. Actually, it was all fake. It was all plywood that was painted to make it look like a mausoleum, make it look like marble. I'm like, for a movie that didn't have any budget, they actually really convinced me that that was a real mausoleum. There's one thing that was a little fakey to me, but every everything else looked very realistic. The the fakey thing was the little finger creature that got in his hair and they had to put down the garbage it's supposed to. That was yeah. a little bit cheesy, but otherwise the sphere, I don't not real sure how they did it. I mean, I don't see any strings and it's zooming through the air. Let's talk the the druid. Don Coscarelli swears that they're not Jawas. <laughs> there may be some truth to this because this was filmed in 77. Star Wars came out in 77. So I guess it'd be like, when did you film the scenes with the Druids? You know, I don't know. There's an argument to be made that he could have seen Star Wars and then he was still filming Phantasm. So it's possible that the Druids were added after he saw Phantasm and thought, well, would that, I could, that's a cool, I'll, I'll make these little guys look like Jawas. Is that a real thing that people think he based yes. on Jawas? Oh, I didn't know that. I just always called them that because they look like them, but no, I never people, thought it people, was one. Yeah, because people say, well, Star Wars was out. It came out while he was filming. Mm. He could have seen the movie and got that idea. He claims he didn't. Obviously, there'd be a reason why he claims he didn't, because if he says that he got the idea from Star Wars, then, you know, you run the risk of George Lucas and at the time saying, hey, now, wait a minute. Yeah, I guess. But the, the, the uses are so different. I mean, and I actually I, I think of them almost more like what was it? The Brood, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Which. Would have come out when when that come out seventy eight I think maybe the filming of Phantasm would have predated that. Gotta mention the car. I'm not a big car person, but the car plays a part obviously in the movie. It's the seventy one Plymouth Barracuda, and that's that's a ends up being a big part of, of the film franchise. That look, it's it's almost kind of like the the car from Supernatural TV series. And I rem- remember hearing that there was an idea of, of like the supernatural, the car and supernatural being kind of patterned after the car from phantasm. I don't know if there's any Mm. truth in that, but I remember I, I've read that more than once. Uh, Also the space gate to the other dimension, according to the various sources that it's a um, homage to 2001, a space odyssey. 
I could see that, whether or not that was intentional or not, I don't know. I guess the only other thing I have, I'm looking at my notes here. Bill Thornbury did eventually finish sitting here after midnight or sitting here at midnight and did record that. It's out there if you want the complete version of that song. Gonna kind of burst some bubbles here. So <laughs> the Lady in Lavender, played by Kathy Lester, the, the gal in the cemetery, not her breasts. It was a, it was a body double. She refused to expose herself for the film, which apparently also led to Bill Thornbury not wanting to have his butt exposed at one point. That apparently caused a bit of a butting of heads between he and Don Coscarelli. They apparently got past that. The title, apparently, uh, Don Coscarelli was inspired by the writings of Edgar Allan Poe, because the word phantasm is used in several of his of his writings. Obviously, it was part of the of the horror genre prior to this, but with this movie, it's very much solidified now that Phantasm, immediately think of this movie, or Phantasmagoria gets gets used much more now. It all goes back to Edgar Allan Poe. And that's some connective tissue for these two movies. So, Rich, you can only watch one of these movies. What's your go-to? Oh, gosh. That's tough. Man... It may be a rhetorical question. Maybe you can't answer it. I, I, I know, know today I would, what it would be, but it may be different. They, they yeah, sort of provoke different probably, feelings in me. I would probably say The Fog. Hmm. Barely, though. But I love both of these movies a lot, and this is a really fun double feature. Well, very good. couple good movies. Good friend joined us. Let's take one more break. i got to go to the bathroom before we leave. So we will be right back. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. All right, Rich, it's time for new business, and we have some video releases this could be a, a segment that we phase out because the majority of things we're getting now are just 4K releases of things that maybe back in our original podcasting early years we were celebrating coming out on Blu-ray. I have no intention of upgrading any Blu-ray I have to 4K. I just don't see the need for it. I'm going to share these. On August 16th, Child's Play is coming in 4K. On August 30th, Cat People, the 82 version, 4K. And then on September 6th, The Fun House in 4K, all three from Shout Factory. Let's see, did the world need The Fun House in 4K? I, <laughs> I just got the Blu-ray. Like, didn't it just come out on Blu-ray? <laughs> Let's see if you think these are deep dives. Okay. August 16th from Kino Lorber. Thank goodness. Samson and the Seven Miracles of the World from okay, 1961. It's not horror, but Sword and Sandals, we kind of fits in, and we're grasping for titles here to share. I would say that's a deep dive. Okay, because... so that features Gordon Scott as Masista, also known as Samson. Gordon Scott oh. would be the top tier of the Sword and Sandal films, clearly, okay. because he did several, and, and what little I know about it, I'm not an expert but I know enough that Gordon Scott is at the top because he also played Tarzan. Yes, this one, deep dive. 
this not as much a deep dive and I apologize this may have this seems like something that continually comes out but I don't recall it I've never really been an Outer Limits fan I mostly if you compare them was Twilight Zone but on August 23rd Kino Lorber is receiving is releasing the entire second season on Blu-ray as well as the entire series on a Blu-ray set that's been out a few times now, I, thought, I think, yeah. but maybe not on Blu-ray. I don't know. I thought I thought it was great series, classic. Yeah. September 6th, a couple of those Vincent Price that seem to hop around different labels. Shout is releasing the Oblong Box and Twice Toad Tales. We probably already have them in the Vincent Price sets. Yeah. And then here is what I would think is really the deep dive. September 20th from Scorpion releasing, which is through Kino Lorber now, Dr. Death, Seeker of Souls from 1973. And you look at the cover, and I almost thought it was that other one that Robert Quarry did when he did the Count Yorga movies. What was that yeah. one? But it's it's not. This is something different. I don't know any of the names that are involved in it. I, um, I do know one of the actors in it. This one's been on my radar forever. It will floor you. You're going to sit there and say, what in the blue hell? Mo Howard from the Three Stooges. <laughs> okay. He's got a, a supporting role. Can you think of any titles that I missed? I know we're just now getting announcements for like November and there's some in there, but we'll get to those closer to time. I mentioned The Fog, you know, earlier, so that's, I'm not. Oh, I'm sorry. That was on my list. That's September 13th on Shout. Um, in a limited edition steelbook. Yeah. Birthdays in the month of August. Our theme this month, Richard, is writers. So we had on August 20th, 1890, H.P. Lovecraft. August 22nd, 1920, Ray Bradbury. August 28th, 1814, J. Sheridan La Fanu. And August 30th, 1797, Mary Shelley. Big month for horror and supernatural writers in science fiction. Indeed. Anniversaries. I was able again to tie this to other podcasts and do some promotion of other podcasts that we listen to. August 15th, 1968, Targets was released. And I relate this to Monster Kid Radio because he sometimes asks his question in the classic five, what's your favorite Boris Karloff film? And if I were to be asked that on most days, I would say Targets. Because I love that movie. A lot of people do. A lot of people, that's their favorite, their go-to Karloff film. August 24th, 1970, House of Dark Shadows. Shout out to Penny Dreadful and Terror at Collinwood, a great podcast that I enjoy listening to. And then September 13th, 1974, this is a bit of a stretch, but Kolchak the Night Stalker, which reminds me in a way of a conversation you had about the Norless Tapes. So we will call out the Magazine and Monsters podcast with Billy Dunleavy, who we said earlier was a new member on the Facebook group page. That, that was a fun discussion. Now it comes to everyone's favorite part of the show. What's up with you, Richard? What are you doing on other podcasts and your writing endeavors? I'm not doing anything other podcasting right now. Woefully, it's been months since I've done anything for Dread Media. Just you know, I'm I'm pod fading on the Dread Media podcast, sadly. Uh, but I, you know, Desmond Reddick continues to do great work, and you never know. I might pop up on there. I sometimes have ideas. It's just a matter of having the time to 
get everything together, that, that's a little bit more difficult. But the blog is still going alive and well, and we are continuing to celebrate Flash Gordon, our summer of Flash Gordon. We watched uh, Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, which is the third chapter serial. Going to be starting that up the week. I said, I moved these to Saturdays because it kind of ended up just happening one week. And I thought, it's kind of a good idea. Saturday afternoon matinees with the chapter serials. So starting August 13th, Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe will we'll start and we'll run over four weeks. It'll take us through uh, the Saturday, September 3rd of Labor Day weekend. Um, and then I'll do like one additional week where we kind of just do a wrap up on Flash Gordon, talk about, I'll just mention some of the other things that happened after the chapter serials. And then I continue to offer up one episode a week of the radio show. Then we begin to look towards the countdown to Halloween. I don't have anything big planned for, for September. Flash Gordon's ending a little earlier than we've done in past years with Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy and stuff. So it'll be a little bit of a break before October really, you know, kicks it into gear. And, and uh, I know you and I got some discussions coming up, but we'll be, we've got some ideas. Uh, so that's what's going on at monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. What do you have going on in your neck of the woods, sir? Well, I'm still putting out a review every Monday. The last couple weeks, I have, I've been getting back into the Blu-rays that I bought and haven't watched freak maker was one. I know you watched it recently on shutter, but that inspired me to get the blu-ray out and, and watch that. So oddities like that on Monday, still, I'm going to promote again, the Friday TV terror guide, because there's another batch of good ones coming up. We have the possessed, which features Harrison Ford in a, I assume a small role. We have red alert with Adrian Barbeau. We have specter, which was a Gene Roddenberry project, story, screenplay, and executive producer. I have that one, actually. Oh, yeah? yeah, I remember this. That was at the peak of my Star Trek fandom, and it was getting ready to come out, and, like, all Lincoln Enterprises and all the places that you'd get stuff had Spectre stuff. Good Against Evil, which was written by Jimmy Sangster, and then Curse of the Black Widow, produced and directed by Dan Curtis. Some great movies coming up. I'm still loving that series. I'm a couple weeks behind. I got caught up. And then, as all things to know, I'm a couple weeks behind again. I know you also love or claim to love DC Comics Guy. And this time I, I do say it. And I know last time I sat here and said Metamorpho was winding down. Well, it really is. I have written the end. Uh, as of today, there's two more. So it'll probably be one when this goes out. And I do know what's coming up next. Another one of my favorite characters. Not a big one, really. Uh, but Red Tornado. And oh, okay. uh, most of his appearances, early appearances, were in Justice League of America. So this might be sort of a fast series where I, you know, I don't really focus on the whole issue, but maybe just the You're not going to go to the, to the. What, <laughs> no, what I am. I am. I have okay. to start out with the history and where it came okay. from. Yep. Yep. Excellent. I know what you're talking about. And then I just want to mention, uh, no one probably cares, but I have a big project ahead of me. I have to migrate all of my blogs because I refuse to pay. Uh, and I've got till middle of November and it's Wix is what I use. And I really liked what I was able to build with it. I liked that it had an option to add a shop, but I never did that. I never set up the shop. So I probably am going to go back to WordPress unless I can find something else that is totally free.
drive in is left behind. We are heading up, maybe we're taking a vacation next month. We're going to go go to the Old West. We've got, I think it's going to be a fun double feature next month. We're going to be checking out the original from the 1970s, Westworld, and then Future World. Two very different films, but yet they're in the same universe. It's been quite a while since I've seen Future World. Westworld is something that I periodically catch, but I haven't seen it from beginning to end in a while. Great double feature next month. Plus, we'll be talking about the uh, original TV series and uh, as well as the the ongoing current television series. It's still going, right? Westworld is yes. still on. That's our discussion uh, that we've got lined up uh, for for next month. And we've also got a lot of fun things lined up for the rest of this year and to kick off next year. We, we've getting things lined up and I'm excited about that. So it's been an absolutely fun summer at the drive-in. I, for one, am absolutely ready for some cooler days, <laughs> some shorter days, because, you know, I, I the, the smell of fall is on the horizon. Mm. Halloween is right around the corner, and that it's entering to one of my favorite times of the year. Then we're going to kick things off in September with Westworld and Future World next time on the Classic Chorus Club podcast. Yes, and one final thank you to our guests this summer to Bill Mize, Jonathan Angarola, and Steve Turek. Thanks for meeting us at the drive-in and talking about the movies. We appreciate your contribution to the show and your support. All right, well, we'll close out this month's meeting of the Classic Horse Club. We're going to go out with a song called Phantasm. Depending where you look, it's either heavy metal or rock. It doesn't sound too heavy metal-ish to me, but it's a 2022 single, so brand new by Anger. And it's available on Apple Music. It is, I believe, related to some type of video game because it's not Sonic the Hedgehog. It's whoever the other one is, is on the uh, cover of it. See you all next month. Stay safe and take care, everyone. <laughs>